This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, false claims of interference overshadowed the 2020 elections. With the countdown now on for the midterms, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission shares how it's keeping election systems safe. And every year, the Office of Children's Issues prevents nearly 200 international child abductions and helps reunite dozens of children taken to other countries with their parents. Then, as Ukraine regains territory in its fight against Russia, the U.S. is sending more weapons that are credited with helping the country's counteroffensive. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The midterm elections are coming up on November 8th, but the U.S. Election Assistance Commission has been helping states prepare since the 22 election. Thomas Hicks is the chairman and one of four commissioners serving on the EAC. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me, what's, what's the commission's role in ensuring security and integrity of the election system? So our role is twofold, basically. So one, we certify voting equipment. It's on a voluntary basis, which states decide whether or not they want to join our program. And over 38 states are currently using some form of our program. The other way that we do this is by handing out and giving out um, security funds, which Congress appropriated in 2018, 2020, and 2022 as well. And so far, we've given out $805 million in the last three years so states can up their security issues or, or uh, fortify their systems. And when you say security, are we talking physical security or are we talking cybersecurity? Explain that. We're talking all kinds of security. So physical security of the voting equipment so they can do uh, two, two protection locks on doors, uh, physical security of uh, election workers. So in June, the four, the four commissioners, myself included, voted to authorize HAVA funds for uh, ensuring that election workers stay safe um, in use of HAVA funds, and then cybersecurity ensuring that cybersecurity issues are taken care of with, with most of this HAVA funds. So there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation uh, around the last uh, election. What are you doing to combat that? So um, mis- and disinformation is nothing new, whether or not it's Democrats vote on Tuesday, Republicans vote on Thursday, or vice versa. Um, that's always been the case. Now that it's using cyber, cyber issues, it's instantaneous. And so what we're doing is uh, combating that with, a, with working with our partners at the National Association of Secretary of State or the National Association of State Election Directors to say that if you want information, you should go to trusted sources like the EAC, like NAS, the election officials themselves to get that information. You know, during the pandemic, voters really turned to mail-in ballots. How do you see that trend? Is that increasing? Will there be more voting by mail, or are people just going to go back in person? I don't know, but I think that vote by mail has been around since the Civil War. Um, and then with the pandemic, a lot of people decided that if this is a little bit easier for me to do, it's a little more convenient, and therefore I'm going to use it. Um, my family uses it because I'm never home on Election Day anymore. Um, so um, I'm going to continue to use it. 
and there are safeguards in place for that. So election officials check and verify these votes before they are counted. I was going to say there was a lot of discussion about that saying, you know, you can't trust mail-in ballots. What do you say to that? I say that that's false. Mail-in ballots are just as safe as any other form of voting. And um, there, there are risks and safeguards put in, or, and safeguards put in place to ensure that um, when people are casting these votes that they're counted only if they are eligible to be counted. You know, another impact of the pandemic was that um, a lot of longtime poll workers opted to stay out of the elections. What are you doing about that? So the Election Assistance Commission has had um, Poll Worker Recruitment Day and Help America Vote Day. So on August 16th of this year, we launched, we, we had for the third time Help America Vote Day, where we recruited poll workers and election workers to serve in the general election. That's going to continue on um, as needed, but when folks sign up for that, they should know that maybe your jurisdiction has enough election workers so that you may not hear back. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't volunteer for 24 or the next federal election moving forward. And you alluded to this earlier about the safety of election officials and poll workers. They got a lot of threats um, against their own personal safety. Tell me a little bit more about what you're doing to help in that case. So we're working with the FBI and other groups to ensure that election officials stay safe. Um, the one thing I want to emphasize is that if someone threatens an election worker or a poll worker, that's a crime, and they should be prosecuted. And um, these folks are volunteering to do this. They're paid, but they're volunteering. These are our aunts, these are our uncles, our grandmothers, our grandfathers. They're just doing what they want to, to ensure that our democracy remains strong. So if the thing I want to say is that if people have an issue with the way that the elections are run, then they should volunteer as a poll worker themselves. Be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And, you know, you had said that this was voluntary for states. Do state election officials welcome your help? Or, or do some of them say, you know what, I, I don't want the feds involved in this? So the, the voluntary voting system guidelines are, are voluntary for the states. But every state has taken um, HAVA funds, and so they have to adhere to certain standards. Some of those standards include making sure that they have a centralized database for election registration or provide provisional ballots for folks who come in whose names might not be on the list, but they feel that they are, and then those are checked before they are counted. You know, I, I just want to wrap up with just asking you, how confident are you about these midterm elections? Will they be safe? Will they be fair? Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think they will be. Every election has some issue that occurs, whether or not that's 1776 or whether or not that's 2022. There will be some issues that occur. The issue that we need to um, focus in on is to ensure that whatever issues come up, those are resolved quickly and accurately. And you are working with CISA, FBI, other federal agencies other to federal ensure agencies, that. The Postal Service, the CDC, working with them still. Um, so, um, I, the, the issue that I would say for everyone is cast your vote. Your vote won't be counted if you don't cast it. All right. Well, Tom, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, in 2020, more than 200 children were abducted from the U.S. and taken overseas. Most of them were returned with the help of the Office of Children's Issues. We'll be right back.
within the State Department is the Office of Children's Issues. It works to prevent American children in the U.S. from being abducted to other countries, reunite abducted children with their parents, and regulate international adoptions. Michelle Bernier-Toth is a special advisor for children's issues at the State Department. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This office was created in 1994, uh, just after the Hague Adoption Convention. What is that uh, convention? So the office was created in 1994, as you said, um, to focus attention on two important issues. One is international parental child abduction, and the other is intercountry adoption. The Hague Abduction Convention, and I, I should say that the office is this U.S. central authority for both of those conventions. The Abduction Convention is a very elegant convention in that it creates a bridge between different legal systems. The concept being that a child who is abducted to a foreign country should be returned to their place of habitual residence promptly so that custody matters can be resolved by a court of competent jurisdiction. And the goal is to, one, prevent and minimize the trauma to the child who has been abducted, and secondly, hopefully, to serve as a preventive measure so that parents will think twice about taking their child to another country against the wishes of the other parent. So let's talk about prevention. I, I know you work with mm -hmm. the Department of Homeland Security, but how does your office work to prevent those abductions? So we always think that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of remedy, and if we can avoid the trauma to the child, that's so much the better. So we have two important programs that we use to try to prevent international parental child abductions. The first is the Children's Passport Issuance Alert Program, whereby we can flag a child's name in our passport system so that if someone, the other parent, for example, applies for a passport on that child's behalf, we will notify the parent who entered the child's name, and we can then examine the custody matters to ensure that two-parent consent requirements are appropriately met or that the, perhaps the, the passport can't be issued to that child because there's an objection. Um, so that's one important program. The second is working, as you said, with the Department of Homeland Security's uh, Customs and Border Protection is the Prevent Abduction Program, where we can, based on a parent's court order that prevents a child from being removed to the United States, we can actually stop the child at the port of entry before they leave. Um, with that program, we es estimate that we can stop up to perhaps sometimes over 200 abductions a year. So what happens tragically if a child is abducted, leaves the United States? What, what can you offer parents? So the country officers in the Office of Children's Issues who are really dedicated professionals who believe firmly and, and passionately in this issue will work with left behind parents to help them identify their lawful options for seeking the return of or access to their child depending on the circumstances. Um, if, it's a, if the child has been taken to a, a country that is a Hague Treaty partner, that's one important resource that the parent has at their disposal to try to pursue a return under the Hague Convention. If that's not the case, if the child has been taken to another country, uh, then they will lay out what all those different options are. It might be seeking custody in the foreign country. It might be having their custody order, U.S. custody order, recognized in the foreign country. It might be a mediated voluntary return. But at each step, the country officer in, in children's issues will work with the left-behind parent to help them navigate, which can be something that can be a very difficult, challenging, and sometimes, unfortunately, lengthy process. You know, your, your office uh, releases a report every year on, on this issue of child mm -hmm. abductions. One thing that stood out was that um, one country in particular had a lot of these um, abductions, which was India. 
Why are American kids being taken there? I think, well, I would say two things. One is, um, unfortunately, India is not a treaty partner under the Hague con the Convention. And so it's very challenging for parents whose children have been abducted to India to navigate a complex legal system in India uh, to try to get the return of their child. So we don't have, unfortunately, many returns from India. We have a lot of long-term cases that have just gone on. Uh, secondly, I think it's we have a lot of ties to India on so many levels, in, in the IT realm, in medicine. So families have come to the United States. Sometimes the marriage breaks down, and uh, the one of the parents will take the child back to India against the wishes of the other. Well, let's talk about international adoption. What role do you play in facilitating that? The department plays a really important role, not just in facilitating, but providing oversight and monitoring. Um, you know, inter-country adoption is so important that it be conducted in a way that is transparent, ethical, and provides safeguards for the protection of the child, first of all, who's involved, but also the birth parents and the adopting parents. And so the Department of State, um, working through accrediting entities, oversees the work of adoption service providers who are operating overseas in foreign countries. Um, and we work very closely with other countries to ensure that they, their programs, on the one hand, are provide those safeguards to ensure that children are, in fact, eligible for inter-country adoption, and that on our side, our parents who are adopting are eligible to adopt. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that the United States, U.S. families have historically adopted half of all the children eligible for inter-country adoption in any given year. And increasingly, those children are children with special needs, they're children who are older, they're children who are part of sibling groups who aren't finding permanent loving families in their own countries, but they are finding those hearts and homes here in the United States. And during the pandemic, a lot of those families were left in limbo because there wasn't a lot of movement across borders. That's right. Um, COVID-related uh, travel restrictions and also the, again, the fact that some courts were closed for periods of time, uh, offices weren't functioning, it did have a significant impact on inter-country adoption, especially in some countries, for example, in China, which has shut down in March of 2020 and still has not resumed inter-country adoptions. But where we could find ways to move forward on cases, uh, to work with countries, to um, allow cases to, to be processed, we have done so. And I think that, that's a, 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 I think a, a tribute to the fact that this is such an important issue for us. Um, and again, we recognize how important it is to the parents who are seeking to adopt. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the program. You're very welcome. Thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the U.S. is sending more weapons to Ukraine, but is holding back the one weapon at the top of Ukraine's wish list. We'll be right back. The Defense Department recently announced another aid package to Ukraine. It will send $625 million in security assistance. Brian Clark is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Brian, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Great to see you. So what weapons are included in this latest round of assistance? So we're going to see a continued shipment of the kinds of weapons the U.S. has been sending thus far. So uh, more rockets for HIMARS, some additional HIMARS that are actually going to be coming out of new construction stock, so not necessarily things out of the existing stock. So those HIMARS are going to be built and then sent to Ukraine, which means there will be some delay. 
Um, some additional unmanned, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, so more of the Switchblade, some more of the Phoenix Ghost kind of drones that have been used thus far to great effect by the Ukrainians. Um, and then additional um, ammunition to support both the artillery that they have and also the uh, kind of uh, ground uh, weapons that they have, the crew, crew served as well as uh, small arms. You mentioned HIMARS, and that's really been credited with the success of this counteroffensive. Right. Explain that weapon and why it's been so effective. Yeah, so HIMARS is a missile launcher um, that can support uh, anything from a relatively small rocket, you know, which is mostly what we've been providing to them, up to the very large uh, ATACMS missile, which can go a couple hundred miles. So the U.S. has been providing the, the rockets to uh, Ukraine, which can reach out to 40 to 50 miles away, which can be very effective at being able to hit the, the rear part of the Russian lines. And it forces the Russians to not be able to get their logistics up to the front, and it also undermines their ability to do command and control. So their forces up at the, at the, at the front lines are now uh, uncoordinated, unable to get guidance from their commanders back aft. Well, besides those really fancy weapons that right. the U.S. has been giving them, why has uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive been so successful? Or is it all about those weapons? Well, it's partly because of those weapons, because they've been able to attack command and control nodes that the Russians have been using, logistics depots the Russians have been using, so their forces at the front have been less well-supplied, less coordinated. Um, and part of it also is the fact that the Russians have been redeploying troops. So the Russian lines were never all that thick to begin with, so they are relatively thinly distributed across the front lines. They redeployed a lot of troops out of Kharkiv in the north, which led to uh, Ukraine gains uh, along the north. They've also been redeploying troops even within Kherson, which is in the south, where the, most of the fighting is now happening, uh, because they're trying to stiffen up those lines and, and make them thicker so that they can be better defended against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So it's partly the results of Ukraine getting better weapons. It's also partly because the Russians are being more strategic with regard to how they deploy their troops, because as we've heard, they've got shortages of manpower and they're trying to do the best they can with that smaller force. I, I do want to ask you about Russian troops, but before we do that, Ukraine has been asking for American long range right. um, missiles. The U.S. said no. Yes. So uh, Ukraine's been asking both for longer range missiles like ATACMS, as well as longer range unmanned vehicles like the MQ-1 uh, uh, Gray Eagle, which is a, an army unmanned vehicle that the, uh, the U.S. has and had talked about providing to Ukraine. Both of those weapons would allow them to attack all the way to the Russian border and maybe even into Russia. Um, so obviously which that, is the big concern. That's a concern for the U U.S. Um, but from the Ukrainian perspective, it would allow them to attack some of these deeper logistics nodes that are supporting the Russian effort uh, and maybe attack some of the key uh, infrastructure that Russia is depending on to support their troops in the field, especially you know, air bases that are supporting air airstrikes that are going against Ukrainian troops and civilian targets today. And so from the American perspective, it's that fear of escalation. Correct. If they were to strike right into Russia. Right. And to some degree, both sides are right, because uh, to some degree, the Ukrainians will have to escalate and attack some of these more strategic targets in order to be successful, because at this point, they've sort of collapsed the Russian uh, forces down to a core that's going to be relatively well defended. To get past that, they're going to have to make these larger attacks deeper into Russian-held territory or even into Russia. So do you recommend that? Uh, I would recommend that, yes. I think we have, uh, if, if Ukraine's going to actually you know, win or at least regain their territory, they're going to have to attack Russian troops back closer to the Russian border. Um, so that's, that's really the, the conundrum that we're in. And it seems like the United States might be thinking that there could be some negotiated settlement that could be reached where Russia gains some of this territory and keeps it. Um, and Ukraine's not willing to accept that. You know, I want to ask you about what's widely seen as sabotage of right. the undersea um, gas pipelines right. between Russia and Germany. Explain the significance of that pipeline and who would want to attack it. 
Well, the, the pipeline is uh, the Nord Stream uh, 1 and 2 pipelines that go between uh, Russia and then uh, Europe, you know, both Germany and, and also into Sweden, Finland. Um, those pipelines go in the Baltic Sea, uh, so they're at about 300 feet underwater. Um, they're hardened you know, and protected, so it's the kind of thing that's going to be very difficult for an accident to have damaged. Uh, and the explosions were all relatively short together, so it implied sabotage. Um, but that basically cuts off a lot of the uh, natural gas pipeline or flow between Russia and Europe. Um, and it sort of gives Russia an excuse to be able to say, I can't send you any more gas because the pipeline's broken, which might be a rationale for why Russia would have done it. So that it's a way for them to um, you know, be able to argue they can't provide gas to Europe during the winter, um, but while not making it seem like it's their fault. And, you, you know, we talked about the, the shortage in, in right. Russian troops. There has been a draft called by right. Putin. What impact are we likely to see on the battlefield? Well, what's happening right now is the 300,000 that uh, Putin called up were reservists to have some com or some military experience, not maybe not combat experience. So it's people who are not untrained, but they're probably you know, out of training for a long period of time. They're relatively green troops. So whatever number of those make it to the front line are not going to be your front line hardened combat troops. Uh, they're going to be there basically to fill in the gaps in that smaller defensive perimeter that Russia has set up down in Kherson to the south. Um, so you'll see some impact in that it'll be a little bit stronger, but it just, it's not going to allow Russia to be able to regain the offensive. It's more or less to, to shore up their defenses as we head into winter. All right. Well, Brian, appreciate you coming in. Thank My pleasure, you. me. Great to see you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And you can listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers 
we sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.